Support for this episode of the New York and Amsterdam News Podcast was provided to Word in Black by the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. Word in Black is a collaborative of 10 Black-owned media that includes print and digital partners. It's Thursday, April 8th, and welcome to the New York Amsterdam News Podcast. I'm Cyril Josh Barker. My guest for this episode is Natasha Capers, who is the director of the Coalition for Educational Justice. She's going to be speaking with me about COVID-19 recovery and its impact on public schools. Well, students of all grade levels in New York City now have the option of going back to in-person learning. Some families are keeping students home for remote learning, while others are doing hybrid learning. New York City schools are expected to get $11.8 billion from the recently passed state budget and $6.9 billion from the federal government. Parents remain concerned about what's being done to keep their students safe. Natasha Capers is the director of the Coalition for Educational Justice, and she is with me on the phone to share her thoughts on everything. Welcome to the podcast, Natasha. How are you? I'm well. Thank you so much for having me. Well, actually, you know, you and I actually spoke a year ago, uh, maybe around this time. Uh, you know, I, one of the things I've been doing is bringing back guests. Last week, we had on NAACP president uh, Derek Johnson talk to us about the African-American community and, and COVID-19. And about a year ago this time, you and I were talking right when COVID was just kind of getting started in the middle of it. Schools had gotten closed. Um you know, student, there was a lot of confusion as about remote learning and all types of things. But I yeah. do want to know from you, what what is going on right now with our schools and how do you feel about it? So there's so much happening. We're coming to the close of a school year um, that has been up, down, and all around, right? And so what students are now allowed back into classrooms, all grade bands are back in classrooms, Um if they want to be, and that's really amazing that our schools have remained so safe. There's still lots of work that has to happen to make sure that we continue to safeguard students and teachers, power professionals, everyone in school buildings. And I think that a lot of people want to make sure that we keep up that rigor with keeping school buildings safe and that we are protecting everyone inside of the building. And now there's just lots of talk about what's happening with state exams, um, which is really troubling, right? We've had a year of a lot of up and down. Students have faced unsurmountable amounts of pressure and shifts and changes and actually have done beautifully in keeping up with that. But they should not be punished by having them to take standardized tests under these conditions. And so there's just lots of conversations currently happening around why are we still having these tests? Why are we still doing high stakes things like like this, like gifted and talents, even though that test is not going to happen? But there's just lots of talk about why are we keeping with some of these high stakes um, kind of metrics and measures that we know don't work. Absolutely. And, and of course, uh, I question also, too, you know, why are we still having these standardized tests when even some colleges and universities aren't even taking, aren't, you know, doing the SAT right now, but yet and still we're having uh, these standardized tests. Um, what are you hearing from parents? Because I know the number one thing p- parents want is safety. And let's just kind of keep in mind that you, we, we talked previously before coming on about that all grade levels of school are now able to, from K through 12, can now go back into the classroom. However, only people 16 and over can be vaccinated. 
good. So that, that kind of poses a danger, you know, obviously to our students. But what are you hearing from parents about how they feel about what the school system is doing to keep our kids safe? I mean, I think there's lots of different things, right? So, and let's be really clear, even with reopening up um, the, the opt-in option to have students come back and do blended learning, come back into the classroom, that there's still a lot of black and brown, um, low-income immigrant families who are still opting to keep their children home. One, we still, like, we continue to see rates in New York City be high and keep kind of, like, peaking. We just came off a spring break. There's going to be another peak. Um, So families are really concerned, especially if you have multiple children going to multiple schools. For me, just even today, I just got a call about my son's high school having uh, a possible COVID positive case and school has only, high school has only been open for a couple of weeks, right? And I have two children in two different high schools and I've gotten calls from both schools around COVID cases. So folks are just, and as they should be, are just still a little leery about bringing students back into the classroom, but also there has to be senses of normalcy, right? Like folks worked really, really hard to figure out how to have their children at home while they're working or maybe not working, but having multiple children in a home, how to support them, how to, how to do all the things, right? And so disruptions to those schedules, to, to that, so that normalcy can be really troubling for children, especially young children. And it's just been a wild, wild school year. So there has, I think a lot of parents are just like, we just want to get to June. <laughs> Me included. <laughs> just, I just want to get to June. Wow. I just want to get to June. I just want to have some summer, right? There's, even now there's lots to talk about summer and summer learning, summer school. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, once again, our stance has been that, that we should not be doing anything punitive to students. We should not be having punitive summer school. If families want to take advantage of summer learning opportunities, that should be what is happening. But they should be enriching. They should be about social and emotional learning. They should be about play. They should be about being outside. They should be about doing things and that are that is not just like oh i gotta relearn fractions right mm-hmm. like right, no right yeah one of the things you mentioned i, I do want to touch on is you're saying that a lot of uh low-income families of color are opting to to keep on with remote learning uh what is the idea behind that what is the reason for that because some people are saying you know that more more families of color that are low income want to keep their kids in the classroom. But you're, you're telling me that there are some that do want to uh, do keep up with the remote learning. Why is that? I mean, there's several reasons. And actually over the course of the school year, we saw this play out where most students that were doing blended learning were actually white students. Um, that that's that for the most part, black and brown families kept children home for remote learning a lot of it is the scheduling. So it's not just, oh, you get to go back five days a week, right? Some mm-hmm. some students are going back two days, three days. I have two high school students. One of my one of my children has decided to we, we decided to allow them to do blended mm-hmm. and they only go back to school two days a week and actually has to miss 
two classes, like a math class and I think chemistry, to be able to travel into school to take the one class he's able to take in person. So a lot of it is because of scheduling. It's not like, it's not a set schedule. Every week, some students' schedules are changing to when, with the days in which they are in class. And so, yes, some schools have the ability to have five days a week in person. A lot of schools don't have that capacity. Mm -hmm. And so for families, it's like I'm supposed to remember these shifting and changing schedules for two, three different children or they can stay home. Mm -hmm. Right. Or that we can stay home. We can figure out our scheduling. We can work it out at home. Maybe we have some support from outside family. Maybe we're just like conquering down and just figuring it out. But a lot of it is scheduling. Okay. And I didn't think about that. If you have multiple children and all three of them go to different schools, that can definitely create a problem for for families on what days to send, what days not to send. And then, of course, with the rising threat of COVID that we're seeing with the cases increasing, uh, that's also, I guess, coming into play, too. Um, one of the things that, that concerns me, that's been concerning to me since this all started, is that um, we're going to lose some students. And what I, what I mean by that is educational-wise, there's a lot of things that are not being learned in school that should be. There's, like, mm-hmm. time-wise, uh, you know, my concern is, is students getting off track. Uh, that's been a major concern of mine. I'm just thinking about myself when I was a teenager or in middle school or in elementary school. I mean, there were several of our students who had wide gaps of time uh, where there wasn't, you know, any learning going on. Um, some yeah. were going back and forth. There was a digital, there is a digital divide, I should say, where for, again, long periods of time, we didn't have students learning at all. Um, what, what do you think about that? I mean, are we, are, are, I mean, keeping our kids on track is so important. Um, what, what, do you, what are your thoughts on that? That is one of the biggest things that folks are afraid of. And so what we, how we want to shift the conversation is that there's, there is an instructional gap, right? Like there's a gap in instruction. And so we know that there are ways, there are techniques, there are practices that will help our students to get back on track. And it's really important for us to really think about what is it that we mean when we say on track? On track for what, right? So much of what happens in a classroom can be about actually learning um, something's content, or it can be about learning skills, right? And so really thinking about what is what are the skills that are fundamental in learning that we have to make sure that children and our students have versus just pumping them full of content. Right, right. Right. So that's one thing. The other thing is that and this is, you know, something that big that has happened in for New York State in this state budget process is that one, we have an influx of funds coming from the federal relief packages, right? Mm-hmm. Like there is a influx of pandemic relief money for schools. So that is one big thing. The other big thing is that if folks don't know, the Campaign for Fiscal Equity, which is a case that was launched um, 30 years ago uh, with the lead plaintiff of um, Senator um, Robert Jackson from from Washington Heights, really alleged that New York State under 
funds New York City schools and actually underfunds schools across the state where there are predominantly black, Latinx, or brown students or low-income students. Mm -hmm. And this year, the, the, um, the state budget has put into effect that they will be paying out the campaign for fiscal equity within the next three years Mm -hmm. and keep paying it at 100%. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean? The campaign for fiscal equity alleged that there was $8 billion of funding that was needed across New York State, half of a big chunk of which was due to New York City. So that means there's going to be an influx of funding, of money that was so desperately needed for wraparound services, for um, extra supports for students, for supports for families, for um, art, music, dance, for culturally responsive curriculum, pedagogy, training, and education, for better resources, books that reflect our students, that reflect the world in which they live in. Mm-hmm. So this is a, a monumental moment because, yes, there's a big need, but there's also ways in which for us to pay to actually meet the need, right? Typically, after the state budget, we're like, oh, teachers are being asked to do um, more with less. And now we're like, no, do more with more. Right, right. We have more, right? And so this is really beautiful because if New York City does it right, this time next year, we, we, can, we will be talking about how we were able to combat that instructional loss through things like culturally responsive education, through things like healing-centered practices and social-emotional learning, and really taking hold of all of the things that New York City has said that they believe in Mm -hmm. and that they want to fund but did not have the money to fund. Well, now (laughs) they have no excuses. For years, I've been doing this work, and people will be like, New York And people will be like, especially like senators and like the legislative assembly members would be like, New York City is flush with, class, flush with cash. And that was always a lie, except for this year. Right. Literally this year, we are not going to, we are going to be so flush with cash. And the question is, will New York City, will Mayor de Blasio do what is right for the 1.1 million children mm. in this city? Will we get the infrastructure right? Will we support educators through culturally responsive um, practices and pedagogy? Mm-hmm. Will we support students through culturally responsive curricula, at, um, ethnic studies programming, um, culturally responsive books, materials, resources? Will we actually invest in the technology that students and schools need and continue to train teachers, educators, and curriculum professionals and being able to develop really good things. Mm -hmm. So that, like, for us, like, the way in which we start to combat the instructional loss is actually to do all the things that we said that we know work. Mm -hmm. And we know that these techniques work. And when we do that and we really center young people and students and families in that process, ugh, the results are, they're off the chain. They're off the chain. (laughs) Absolutely. And I know you've been fighting that for a long time. I want to get back to the budget in a minute, but I did want to ask you about something uh, in particular. A lot of the conversations that I've been having with a lot of our black leaders, um, our black politicians, when it comes to education, aside from the academic part, uh, 
they always seem to bring up the mental health component. And to me, that is so important uh, as a person who has dealt with mental health uh, and knows people who have dealt with mental health issues about how important it is to make sure that your mind is where it needs to be in order to be able to do what you have to do. Um, is this a factor as well with COVID and 19? Because again, one of the things I keep hearing is we've had a lot of our young people who have seen so much in this pandemic from people getting sick in their families to death in many cases, uh, to being to isolation. Cause we're doing this remote learning and social distancing and virtual situation. Uh, how important is mental health when it comes to education, when we're talking about COVID-19 and, and recovering? It's so important. And it's such a key lover that often gets sussed about a push to the side and, it's one of the reasons why we elevate um, healing-centered um, practices and techniques and social-emotional supports is because that we have to be thinking about um, our young people and our educators' mental health, right? Anyone like me who lives with anxiety or depression knows how hard it is to retain information. Absolutely, when absolutely. You just, I know where you're coming. I'm, I'm agreeing right with you because I've been there too. I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> Miss, don't be asking me about the Pythagorean theorem. I'm barely here. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I put on clothes this morning and showed up. Give me a congratulations. Right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Right? And we we feel that as adults, right? Like, there's going to be people who are like, yes, yes, I'm at work today, but hmm, my mm-hmm. brain ain't. Right? <laughs> But that's how it is for young people, too. And so we have to, one, acknowledge that, two, respect it, and three, like, give folks and give young people the tools and the help that they need to move through that. Yeah. And so we have to take that into account. Students, there are going to be young people who have lost so many people. Yeah, absolutely. I have friends who have lost 10, 12, 13 people, mm, wow. right? There's going to be young people who have been like, I've experienced X amount of loss or come into school and they're, they're going to be in a classroom where this used to be my, my teacher's class, other teacher's classroom, and they're not here no more. Wow. Right? We have to take grieving into account. And so at CEJ, when we talk about social emotional learning, part of that is like when we come back into school buildings, we have to be respectful of the fact that folks have experienced grief. And as people of color, we tend to then have, we have events around that, right? We have a repass. We we have those things to help us move through. And so schools have to do the same thing. We have to allow space for grief. Mm -hmm. We have to have conversations about grief and what does it feel like? What does that look like? Right. It doesn't matter that, you know, maybe next school year and it's December and all of a sudden something is hitting a kid in the middle. I remember I lost my dad when I was in high school. Yeah, I lost mine when I was when I was in the sixth grade. So I know what exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like my dad died in March. And I remember sitting in in a teacher's classroom in like June and just sitting there crying. Mm. And they're like, what's wrong? And I was just like, like, it just hit. Like, it just, like, in the middle of nowhere, it hit. Absolutely, absolutely. And how are we going to make space for that, right? How do we, how do 
educators make space for that in their classrooms? How do we make space for, oh, a student is physically here, but I can see that they're mentally not here. They've checked out. Mm -hmm. Where are they? How do we have help? And because of this budget, because of the money that is inflowing, that there's no excuse not to have mental health professionals in school buildings at this time, right? There's no excuse for next school year having school buildings be equipped with mental health professionals, social workers, grief counselors, even having folks from the community who can help bring healing practices in and be a listening ear, be a mentor, be someone who can help process not just student grief, but also the adults in the building. Yeah, absolutely. And I do want to get back on to the budget. It just uh, passed here in New York State. Uh, lots of great things coming out of it. Some some things not so great we're seeing. Uh, but I, I want you to kind of expand a little further on some of the things that you, you're seeing in the budget when it comes to education, particularly when it comes to COVID, because so much has been lost. Uh, and there, there are... There are uh, there are gaps that need to be bridged, and hopefully this budget will help with that. But speak to me further, uh, speak to us rather further about your thoughts on the budget when it comes to education. This budget, I, I really have been doing this work for 10 years, and I, and I know folks who have been doing this work even longer. And I don't, I don't think I've ever experienced or even other folks have experienced a budget like this. It's, you know, we're really excited about especially the campaign for fiscal equity for folks who don't know, like it really does raise the floor on school funding, right? It really does pour equity into the system around how much money schools get and how then they're able to like spend and what they're able to do for students and and for the school community. So we're really, really, really excited because, so much, there's so much to, that needs to be done, right? Just talking about even the social and emotional health of students and mental health of students, that is a big line of funding that typically we would not have access to, right? And for every student to have access to some type of mental health professional in their school. But now we actually can have that. Like that can be something that we see happen in the next few years. And this fight, over 30 years, you know, for the campaign for fiscal equity really does fundamentally shift how schools would be able to function forever, for generations, right? So it took 30 years to get it. Over the next 30 years, we really have the opportunity to transform generations in in terms of what they're able to do in their schools, what they're able to learn, how we're able to learn, and what even new school buildings can look like. There's a lot of money, there can be lots of money for infrastructure. So there's always conversation around how do we reduce class size, Mm -hmm. right? There's always lots of conversation around like, how do we have more art? How do we have more dance? How do we have more, more enrichment? How do we have after-school programs that are yeah, good are so and needed. enriching yes. and fulfilling? Like this is this 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 is how right <laughs> the campaign for fiscal equity was the how right everybody knows the what the culturally responsive education social emotional learning mm-hmm. lowering like everybody knows the what but everyone always asks how do we do it and the campaign for fiscal equity was how we do it and so over my time 
in this work. I've seen parents and young people go to Albany dozens and dozens and dozens of times rallying hundreds and thousands of people calling for this. I was part of a team that walked to Albany 150 miles from New York City wow. a few years ago. I st- look, my foot ain't never been the same. Like I, I <laughs> got a marcher's, a marcher's fracture in it, and it ain't never been right since. Wow. And <laughs> meanwhile, the governor was like, look at them doing publicity stunts. And I'm like, let me show you my medical bills because that's not <laughs> a stunt. Yeah, absolutely. But the fact is like all we all of that, like Robert Jackson walked to Albany twice for for this cause, right? And so folks really have put their, their not just their words and their work on the line, but people put their bodies on the line yeah. for this to happen. And it is really, it's historic. It is truly historic. Folks will look back on this and be like, how, how did this ever happen? And it will be just a thing that is normalized for our schools that have full funded. Isn't it even crazy that we even say the sentence that our schools are not fully funded? I know, especially like in a that, even state like that New York. Right. I know, just even here in New York, in New York State. Uh, and I see the, the you know, I, I live near three schools, so I definitely know what you mean. I see the disparities. I see there's a building across the street from me. They've been working on that school for about a year now. And I'm guessing because of COVID, I'm talking about working in terms of the construction physical i guess they're making improvements and i'm guessing because of covid you know obviously that construction maybe has been halted i don't know but um anyway last question i want to ask you is we are i guess rounding the curve a lot of people say we're at the end of the tunnel or there's a light at the end of the tunnel here we're starting to maybe get back to some normalcy more people are getting vaccinated we're seeing more things open up what needs to happen next in our public schools as we recover from covid19 what needs to happen next I think that there definitely has to be more conversation with communities around what does reopening look like. Um, and that means not just talking for, you know, DOV and city hall to talk to people who are already on parent bodies or structures like the, the school leadership team or the community education council. Those are amazing people to talk to and they should continue to have those conversations, but really like finding ways to have conversations with the mom at the playground, right? To find, to have contact with folks who are not monolingual English speaking, right? How do we have conversations with our more marginalized communities? There has to be lots of conversation with our communities for students with disabilities, right? Like the the risk is different and heightens for them. Those conversations have to be had with those families, especially D75 families. Uh, We have to have conversations with families who have students who are English language learners or new English language learners. Those conversations are so important because those students are the ones who are most left behind, right? When we, our school system tends to be really hyper-focused, especially on, on ability and language, right? So we think about who has access to the building, who has access to these conversations, who has access to be able to contact their, like not just their their principal, but their superintendent and all those other mechanisms. We have to have conversation with folks who, who not just quote unquote feel left behind, but who have actually been left behind. And how do we have those good conversations to talk about what does reopening look like for them? What does mm-hmm. reopening look like for a D75 student? 
what does reopening look like for English language learners? What does reopening look like for um, students in temporary housing who are um, or who are homeless? Yeah, right. We absolutely. have to have those conversations and we have to be able, and we have to be honest about what that means. Right. Do and do we have to have a differentiated approach to those different communities? And the answer is most likely, yes. Yeah. And then we have to do that. Right. It's not enough just to list to just to have the conversation. You then have to actually do the things that community is saying needs to be done. All right. Well, listen, Natasha, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about this. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. That concludes this week's podcast. You can pick up the latest edition of the New York Amsterdam News on newsstands and get updates online at AmsterdamNews.com. You can also keep up with us on Facebook at NY Amsterdam News and follow us on Twitter at NY Am News. I'm Cyril Josh Barker. Thanks for listening. Support for this episode of the New York and Amsterdam News Podcast was provided to Word in Black by the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. Word in Black is a collaborative of 10 Black-owned media that includes print and digital partners.